Well, good morning. It is great to see everybody. Great to be back. We are continuing our summer series, This Changed My Life. And today we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture that may have changed more lives over the last 2,000 years than just about any other passage. It's in the book of Romans. It's chapter 1, and it's verses 16 and 17. And we're going to be talking about your gospel breakthrough. Uh, some of you know that um, on Tuesday, Dana and I returned from a two-week trip to Europe. We were in Switzerland and we were in Germany. Uh, some of you may know that 2017 is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, and we were very blessed to be able to visit some of the most important sites, not only in church history, but truly also in all of world history. We saw cities and we saw places that I have uh, been wanting to see ever since I completed my PhD in historical theology. In Switzerland, we got to walk the streets where John Calvin, the reformer, walked. He's a man that I think many of you have heard of. We also, in Switzerland, uh, got to visit uh, some places where Ulrich Zwingli lived and worked. He's a person that you probably aren't as aware of, less well-known. Uh, most of our time was spent in Germany, and we were part of a tour that traced the life of Martin Luther from his birth to the launching of the Protestant Reformation all the way up until his death. And it was really an incredible, an incredible time. Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about him as we talk about this passage today because this was a passage that really changed him and really changed history. Just to give some context, Martin Luther was born in the year 1483 and he began as a, a young person, a very uh, serious spiritual search uh, he became a monk in the year 1505, and, and as he entered into the monastery, he pursued God about as fanatically, about as devotedly as a human being could ever do in their own strength. But in spite of that, he always lived during those years in doubt, in anxiety, in fear. And when uh, he had been in the monastery for over a decade, uh, 500 years ago this year, actually on October 31st, 1517, he did something that unwittingly launched what we today know as the Protestant Reformation. He was a professor of Bible at the University of Wittenberg, and he had seen these spiritual abuses that were taking place in the Catholic Church. And so he wanted to protest those. He wanted to open a debate up on those problems. And the way you did it back then was you would post your points for debate. He had 95 points. You think my sermons are long sometimes. He had 95 points, 95 theses, and he nailed those up to the castle church door uh, there in the city where he lived, the city of Wittenberg. Uh, I want to show you next a picture of Dan and I. We were standing in front of that door. There's the door. There's us. It's not the same door. There was a wooden door when he nailed it in. That has gone away. They now have a, a metal door that has all the, the 95 theses on it, and we got the privilege of being there. You see, at this time, the church had become very, very corrupt. It, I can't explain all the details right now, but they were exploiting common people uh, for wealth and for, for power, taking advantage of spiritual vulnerability. And Luther didn't like that. Luther saw what it was doing to the people he was serving there in the city of Wittenberg. And so he wanted to reform the church, this church that he had given his life to serve. But what happened instead of reforming it the way he thought uh, out of his incredible spiritual struggle, uh, he found God. 
he experienced salvation. Out of that, God used him to literally change world history, uh, primarily by his work in translating the Bible into the language of the German. People could actually read uh, the Bible in their own heart tongue. I'm going to show you some other pictures. Here's the castle where he did that translation. It's an incredible place. Um, it's called the Vortberg Castle. We got to go in that castle. Uh, in that room right here, this is the room where he did all the translation work. Um, again, it's an amazing thing to be in a place where actual history, transforming history, has taken place and the effects are still going out for 500 years. Now, uh, I want to say something. I want you to think about this. And this is kind of to be planted in your mind as we go on to the main part of the message. But I think it's important um, it is not hyperbole for me to say that your life today is drastically different because of Martin Luther. And this is true whether you've ever heard of him or not. This is true whether maybe you've heard of him, but you don't know who he is or, or what he did. I, I want to say something about history. If you're someone who's come here today and you, you, you say, I'm, I've never heard of any of these men, well, I have to tell you, I'm sorry. I, I'm really sorry you haven't. And as your pastor, seriously, I want to say to you that you should get to know them. Again, in the providence of God, it's true. You wouldn't be in this room. You wouldn't be here uh, if, if God hadn't worked in these men's lives. Uh, Dan and I, uh, in our family circle with our kids, have been calling our trip the nerd tour. Um, and I think a lot of people think that these people who lived so long ago, so far away, don't really matter. They don't really have consequence. They're not of significance to us today. You know, they may be historical curiosities. They may just be people only history nerds would ever care about. And I want to push against that. I know, uh, living in this country and culture, that as Americans, most of us tend not to care about history. We don't think it's important. Some of us don't like history because we had bad history teachers. How many of you had a bad history teacher somewhere in your educational past? So you got turned off to history, and that may be part of why you don't like history. But I want to say something else. I think more often Americans don't like history because of this. We have in our culture a very self-centered, very narcissistic, very arrogant assumption that only the present matters, that we're the smartest and we're the wisest, and we're the best, and all those other morons in the past, they didn't know what was going on, so why should we learn anything about them? Here's the thing. If you're a Christ follower, history should matter. It really should, and I say this without hesitation, without exception. You know why? Because the Bible is a book of history. Do you understand that? God revealed himself in his son during space, time, and history. Christianity is different than all other religions of the world because of its connection to history, what has actually happened in this world, in history. And if you don't like history, you don't care about history, you're going to have a hard time really understanding the Bible. So history does matter. Now, that's kind of a side point. But what I want to do today, coming out of this, is I hope that I can show you um, some of what I'm talking about as we look at this scripture text, this passage that absolutely changed Martin Luther's life. See, if you know Jesus, this passage has changed your life 
also, whether you've thought about it or not. And if you don't know Jesus, you're here today, maybe you're exploring, maybe you're checking things out, then I'm praying right now, you need to know, and I've been praying that God would use this passage to open your life and change your life. So this is a passage that has changed lives for 2,000 years now, and I'm calling this message your gospel breakthrough because that's what God used Paul's words to do in Martin Luther's life. Later in his life, he was reflecting back on the time that he came to faith when God broke through. He was talking about, uh, writing about what scholars understand to be his conversion experience where God opened his eyes, where God brought him to salvation. And he said it had to do with Romans 1, 16 and 17. I want you to listen to what Paul writes, and then I'm going to read to you something that Martin Luther wrote. Paul writes, Romans 1, 16 and 17, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And that's everyone. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, you need to know these two verses are the beating heart of Romans, this letter. These two verses give us Paul's central message. They, they sum up the truth that he wants us to get as we read uh, this letter that he's written, the truth about the gospel. And they are two of the most important verses in all of the Bible. They're important. Now, listen to what Luther wrote about them. He wrote, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans. And nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. And stop right there. Here's what I want to say. I bet some of you here have been in that place. You don't want to tell anybody. You especially don't want the pastor to know that. It's what you think. But you've been right there where you were angry at God. How could God do this? How could God let this world be like this? How, how, why do I feel like this? This is where Luther was. He was seeking God, but he couldn't, he couldn't get right. He said, night and day, I pondered. That's this passage. He's studying Romans 1, 16 and 17. I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that through gift and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. When I saw that law meant one thing and gospel another, I broke through. Martin Luther had a breakthrough. And what he means is that God completely transformed his life, his thinking, his heart, his will, his emotions, everything by these verses. He, he pondered them. He meditated on them. He wrestled with them and thought about them until he broke through. Have you ever broken through? If these two verses have never done to you what they did to Martin Luther, I want to show you today how that can happen in your life, how you can break through. There are three things that you need to see to break through. And if 
God has broken through to you. I want you to see these three things so that you can grasp them better to help someone else see them who needs to break through. Here's the first thing. The gospel breaks through when, number one, I see the gospel as news, not advice. As news, not advice. Now, if you were to read the opening verses, verses 1 through 17 of Romans 1, you might notice that the word gospel shows up again and again and again. It shows up here more than any other place in the book. In fact, I think it may be that the gospel shows up more like per phrase than any other place in the Bible here in these verses. Now, why would it be there so often? Why is this so important? Let me explain. The word gospel translates a Greek word that gets translated like this, and we'll put it on the screen. It's pronounced euangelion. And it's a Greek word that's made up of two parts. The E and the U at the first part is a word that means good. It just means good. Uh, just like we have a, a eulogy that is spoken at, at a, a memorial service, a good word. And, and then there's this second part of the word, angelos. We get our word angel from. Uh, this word literally is a word that means messenger. Really, that's what angels are. Uh, God didn't create angels to make money for Hallmark, okay? God created angels to be his messengers. And if you think about that and bring that up into our time, the 21st century, you might start to see that this core concept behind the gospel has to do with what we would call news media. You ever think about that? Angels are God's news media. Uh, back in ancient times, uh, you know, they were, they, they, they were so, so... This had such a terrible time. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have TV. They didn't even have radio. They didn't even have newspapers. How did they ever survive? So how did you get news out? How did you get message about things that had happened out? Well, messengers were the news media. Here's just one example. Let's say you're in this city and there's a wall around your city and there's a military battle that's going on out there and it's important because whoever wins is gonna determine what happens to your city, where you live, with your family. You wanna know who's gonna win the battle. It matters to you. And when a general wins the victory, he will send the word out by a messenger, by a herald, will bring the news. He'll come into the town square and he'll declare what has happened. Victory has been won. And then he'd go to the next town square down the road and de de declare victory there, and everybody would celebrate. See, this is the concept that's at the heart of the word gospel, and you need to get this. The essence of the Christian message, the heart of Christianity is news, good news. That's a word we use for gospel, good news, joyful news. And here's what I want you to see today. This is the difference between the gospel and every other philosophy or religion. The gospel is not good advice about what you must do. It is primarily good news about what has already been done for you, something that has already happened outside of you. And this is totally different than every other religion. Every other religion says if you really want to know God, if you really want to escape the suffering in this world or escape eternal punishment, then you need to do this or do that. You need to do certain things. It's always advice, only Christianity is news, not advice. News about something that has been done already for us. Now, there are many people, and maybe some of you here right now, who have not ever really broken through because you've never really seen this. And part of breaking through, like Martin Luther did, is for you to see how utterly different the message of Christianity is. It's good news. 
It's not advice. I mean, just think about this. You can think about it for yourself. If, if I were to ask anybody, just kind of the average person on the street in Tracy or in Mountain House or in Lathrop, if I were to ask them, well, what do you think the essence of Christianity is? What, what do you think it means to be a Christian? What are they going to say? The average person is probably going to say, well, I think it means you live a good life. You know, you try to be a good person, be a good neighbor. You know, I don't know, live by the golden rule, stuff like that. And I think those are great ideas. Would you vote for that? How many of you think it'd be nice if more people around us live by the golden rule? Not a bad thing. But that's not news. And that's not the heart of Christianity. It can't be because it's not news. And this is what Martin Luther finally figured out. Let me tell you some more about him. As I said earlier, he was born in 1483 in what we know today as Germany in the area. If you're kind of up on your history in that part of the world and what until just a few decades ago was East Germany. Most of where we spent our time was before 1989 was East Germany for uh, several decades. We got to visit the town where his life began and he was born into a family uh, where his father was a copper miner. Now this sounds to us like a guy with a pick on his back, but he was really more like the guy who bought the copper mine and got the people to work. He was really more like a businessman or an entrepreneur, and he was prosperous. And Martin Luther's father wanted his firstborn son, Martin, to be a lawyer. His mother was a devout religious person, but she was also someone who held to many of the superstitions that were part of that time, and there were a lot of them. And it turns out that young Martin was brilliant. He was just a, a brilliant student. By age 21, 21, he had earned both a bachelor's and a master's degree. And he was returning to the university in the city of Erfurt where he had gotten his degrees. It was July of 1505. He was riding a horse through this dense forest and a thunderstorm broke out. And it was a really severe thunderstorm. And in the midst of this thunderstorm, a lightning bolt came down and hit so close to his horse that it knocked him off the horse, knocked him to the ground. Now, here's something you need to know about this day and time. Ben Franklin hadn't shown up yet. They didn't know anything about lightning. They hadn't been to the, you know, the science teacher's class or watched a YouTube video or whatever uh, that you might have done so you understand. When lightning struck, if it struck really close to you in that day, in that time, their assumption was that God just missed And so Martin Luther, God probably, he probably had been struggling with some stuff in his mind, and he thought God was giving him a shot, giving him a warning. And so as he laid on the ground in terror because this lightning hit so close to him, I mean, you'd imagine, you know, the, the, the experience, some of you have maybe experienced this of lightning hitting so close to you that the thunder is instantaneous, and just, I mean, it must have been incredible. He lays on the ground, and in terror, he cries out, Save me, St. Anne, and I will become a monk. Two weeks later, 21-year-old Martin Luther made good on this vow. He entered an Augustinian monastery, and Martin Luther's dad was furious because he had just finished paying off all the student loans for the education, <laughs> and he couldn't believe his son was going to waste it all. But Luther pushed ahead. He entered the monastery. He became a monk, and while he was there, he drove himself like few people have ever driven themselves to earn the acceptance of God through his works. Here's something he wrote about that. He, he said, I tortured myself with prayer, fasting, vigils, and freezing. 
We were in the monastery, and you could see the place where they, they, they would have spent their life, and it, it's cold there, and there was no heat there. Uh, they didn't put that there. It was just a very difficult place to be. He said, the frost alone might have killed me. What else did I seek by doing this but God, who is supposed to note my strict observance of the monastic order and my austere life? I constantly walked in a dream and lived in real idolatry, for I did not believe in Christ. I regarded him only as a severe and terrible judge portrayed as seated on a rainbow. That's who he thought Jesus was. And out of that sense of Christ as his judge, he did everything he could to confess his sins. He would confess his sins for hours on end. I mean, imagine being the guy on the other side of the screen. It drove the priests crazy, the confessors crazy. In fact, one time, one of them told Luther, go out and commit a real sin and then come back and talk to me. I'm tired of listening to all this stupid stuff that you're, you're confessing to me. He just was incessant. He wouldn't quit. And in 1510, he'd been there five years. His superiors sent him on a pilgrimage to Rome, to the holy city, hoping that as he visited there, he would find peace. And he got to Rome, and it was an 800-mile journey from where he lived to Rome. And you had to cross the Alps. Okay, can you imagine that if you know anything about the terrain? There was a long journey. He got there, and when he got to Rome, he did what pilgrims did. He climbed what they call the, the Scala Sancta, the holy stairs. Supposedly, these were the same stairs that Jesus had climbed when he appeared before uh, Pilate. These stairs had supposedly been moved from Jerusalem to Rome, and the church claimed that if you would climb those stairs on your knees, and at each stair that you would stop and you would pray the Lord's Prayer, that your sins would be forgiven. And he did this. At each step, he prayed this prayer. and each step, he kissed the step, and he got to the top, and he looked around, and he thought, who knows whether this is true? It didn't satisfy the unrest in his soul. In another place, this is what he wrote about his life. And he said, when I was a monk, I wearied myself greatly for almost 15 years with the daily sacrifice, tortured myself with fastings, vigils, prayers, and other very rigorous works. I earnestly thought to acquire righteousness by my works. Luther thought that all those things he was doing would give him God's favor. He did what he did because he thought that the gospel was advice, not good news. He thought that salvation came from following that advice, from doing good works, earning the favor, uh, meriting the grace of God. And you know what I know? There are some of us in this room who are living in a 21st century version of that. We're still there. We're still trying to make ourselves right with God, to acquire righteousness by our works. See, Luther discovered the gospel as good news, and that's when he broke through. He discovered that the gospel is news, news about what has been done for you, news that changes your life and sets you free and fills you with such joy that now, now out of that fullness, you can serve God, you can obey God. He, he discovered that's what it means to follow Christ. 
Something has happened outside of you, something that is enormous, and it's that thing that has happened outside of you that changes your heart. Now I can live for God. Now I can do things that are, are good, but it's because it's news that has changed me. That's the breakthrough. See, breakthrough, transformation comes like this. See, if you, if you say to someone, here's what it means to be a Christian, you just need to love your neighbor, and you need to live by the golden rule, do you realize if you tell someone something like that, there's really only three responses to that, you know, live a good life kind of idea. And one response is the person can say, well, I already know that. Sure, I I get it. They kind of shrug, indifference. The second response, it would be like Luther's. And that person would say, well, that's too hard. I can't do that. They give up. They're crushed and overwhelmed. And there may be some of you who've been in that place. And the third response to that kind of message is to do what the Pharisees did, to say, I do that all the time. They're smug. See, in all three cases, there's just no breakthrough. There's no life change or transformation. Do you know how you can tell whether you see Christianity as news or just good advice? Let me give you a diagnostic question. I'd like you to write this down. It's going to be on this screen. Here it is. Whatever you believe about God or how you should live, is it mainly about you or is it mainly about what he has done? Is it mainly about you and what you must do or is it mainly about what Christ has done on our behalf? See, that's the breakthrough. The gospel is news. It's not advice. Here's the second way you break through. It's when I see that God wants to give me Jesus righteousness. The gospel is good news, and that good news is this, that God wants to give me the righteousness of his son. Now listen again to verse 17. Paul says, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now this is the verse, this is the place where Luther wrestled and Luther agonized and Luther meditated and he thought and he thought and he thought upon it until suddenly he realized the righteousness of God is a righteousness that comes to me, a righteousness that God wants to give me, a righteousness that I receive by faith. That was what opened everything up. Now, two weeks ago, less than two weeks ago, we stood outside the place where Luther was living, and Luther was studying when he had this breakthrough, and I took this picture that's going to be on the screen. This is the residence that he was given as a professor and later as a reformer to live in, and a lot of people live there. It's a huge place. Um, and he had what has become known as his tower experience when he had this breakthrough Uh, We don't know for sure if it happened in that tower or if that was just how it got described. But this this is where he was living when this happened. And this is what he said as he studied Romans 1.17. He said, here, reading this verse, getting it, here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. That place in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. You see, Martin Luther had thought that God's righteousness 
was just his absolutely holy and just standard by which he judged sinners. God is righteous. We are not. We get judged. And Martin Luther looked at that, and Martin Luther knew that he would never measure up. He knew that no matter how hard he worked, no matter how many sins he confessed, it would never be enough until he broke through. And you know what happened when he broke through? He realized a couple of things that are in this verse and in the word of God. I want you to write this down. He realized, first of all, that righteousness is a change of status before God. It is something God declares about us. God does it. A little bit later on in this letter to the Romans in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes these words. He says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, Paul says here, because we've been justified by faith, we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. This word stand means standing like in the presence of a great king or judge. And what Paul is saying is this. Jesus has done something to change the way God sees us so that now God looks at us and in spite of all our sin, in spite of everything wrong with us, he's given us a new status. Our relationship with him has changed. Something has been done outside of us. That's the news. And because of that, now the Father looks at us and he loves us and he delights in us and he accepts us. We have a new status with him that he's given to us. Then secondly, Martin Luther broke through when he realized that the gospel is more than just forgiveness. Now, you need to stay with me because that may trouble some of you first hearing it. I am not saying let the record show there's anything wrong with forgiveness. No one write on a blog, Pastor Mike doesn't believe in forgiveness or anything like that. But here's the thing. Many people think that's all salvation is. That's all Jesus did. And the idea is because Jesus died on the cross, when I do something wrong, I can ask God for forgiveness and I'm forgiven. And that is true. Isn't that wonderful? That's wonderful. It is. It's more than wonderful. But I want to show you if that's all it is, it's not enough. And it's way less than what is being promised here. You see, if it's just forgiveness and nothing more, if that's all salvation is, that because Jesus died on the cross, I can now ask for forgiveness and I can have my sin forgiven and God forgives me and he wipes the slate clean. If that's all that is, do you realize what that is? That would mean that even though he's forgiven me for what I just did wrong, now my relationship with him is still up to me. Because what about today and tomorrow and the future? See, if it's just forgiveness for my sins that I've committed in the past, that would be like God saying, hey, I just forgive you. I'm not going to hold the past against you, but from now on, you better get it right. If that's all forgiveness is, it's not enough. Now, you can think of this illustration. For example, a man is in prison, and we think, well, we'll give that guy a new life. Well, you might say, well, a pardon. A governor writes him a pardon. He's out. Wow, new life. But actually, not exactly. Because he's now just back to the place where the rest of us are, except he doesn't have a job. So he's got to get a job. He's got to find a place to live. He's got to rebuild his life. It's a very long haul. See, he doesn't really, really have a new life yet. If that was you, what more would you want? And let me tell you the answer. The salvation of the gospel is not just like getting a pardon to get out of prison. It's like also getting 
a Congressional Medal of Honor on top of that. It's both a negative and a positive. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is 2 Corinthians 5.21. Paul writes, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what does that mean? (laughs) Well, think. On the cross... What does it mean to say that God made Jesus sin? Does that mean that God made Jesus sinful, that God put sin in Jesus' heart so that he became, you know, greedy and angry and violent? Well, of course not. I mean, no, we know. What was he doing on the cross? He was up there, right, forgiving his enemies, the people who had nailed him to the cross, the people that were hurling vile insults at him. He was forgiving them on the cross. He was even up there loving his father, even when his father was forsaking him, pouring out his wrath on him to pay the penalty for the sins that that we deserve, thereby judging the world's sins. It doesn't mean that Jesus became sinful. What it means is that he was treated as our sins deserved. He was given the treatment that our record deserves. So what does it mean then to say that when you give your life to Christ and our sins are put on him, God made him who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him? What does that mean? Well, it can't mean that automatically the minute you become a Christian, you become righteous in your heart any more than he became sinful on the cross. Now, what it means is that we are covered with his medals. We are covered with his glory. We are covered with what he has done. We are treated not the way we deserve, but the way he deserved. Luther saw that it was like he was going to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, that that righteousness would be put upon him, given to him as a gift. And he said, that is incredible. See, Jesus not only died for us, but he lived a blameless life for us, and that life is what he gives to us as a gift. That's the righteousness from God. You get credit for Jesus' righteousness. Is anybody here right now glad? See, 2 Corinthians 5.21, if I could put it this way, is telling us, Jesus lived the perfect life you should have lived. He died the sinner's death you should have died. And so therefore, all your guilt and all your shame, everything that you deserve has been laid on him. And in return, you get, you get his record of perfection, his glory, his beauty, all put on you. You are given credit for his righteousness in God's sight. Anybody remember the story of the baptism of Jesus when Jesus comes up out of the water and the Father speaks from heaven. Do you remember what the father said to his son? He said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Do you understand that the righteousness of God given to you in Christ means that that benediction from the father given to Jesus at his baptism is now word about you? That God says, God speaks that word about you if you are in Christ. 
And he says that word on your best days. And he says that word on your worst days. He says that word no matter your history, no matter your past. God pronounces that good word over you if your faith is in Christ. You are his beloved child. You are clothed in his righteousness. It's not about what you have done. It's not about anything you ever will do. It is only about what Christ has done, what he has accomplished for you. See, Martin Luther And the other reformers, they started calling this righteousness by this term. They called it an alien righteousness. That's a phrase that probably is a little confusing to us because we've watched some movies, right? (laughs) But it's not about that. For example, when Dan and I were in Switzerland and Germany for a couple of weeks, we were aliens because the word alien just means from another place. We were in those countries, but we were from another place. In other words, this righteousness is alien. It isn't our own. It comes from totally outside of us. It comes from Jesus. We, we, we receive it from him. And it's so, so easy for us to misunderstand righteousness. You know, um, I've talked to some people over the years who hear about people like Martin Luther and here's the category. Many secular people put a guy like him and They say, you know, there are they're just these people that are religious. And I don't know what's wrong with them. They're just racked with shame and guilt. Who knows why? Maybe their mothers, you know, potty trained them wrong or something like that. We don't really know. But there's just always some people like this. And so they need this kind of stuff. But I don't need anything like this. This doesn't really apply to me. And here's what I want to say. It is not just them. It's everyone. It's you, whether you've ever realized it or not. And here's the reality. Write this down because I want you to think about it. And you may need to think about it, ponder it. Here's, here's what I want you to write down. Everyone is looking for righteousness. It is built into the human condition to struggle for righteousness. And that just means to try to find something that makes us right, something that gives me a sense of significance, something that says to me, my life matters, my life counts. And if you have ever laid awake in the middle of the night and thought about your life and wondered to yourself, why am I here? Does my life matter? Then you have touched in a conscious way, this search for righteousness. And we look for it in all kinds of areas. Some people look for it in this area of morality, being a good person, and that is their righteousness. They think they matter. They think they count. They think their life has significance because they play by the rules and they treat people right and they do good things. Other people do it in another way. Some people do it with money. Money is their righteousness. Maybe you remember in the worldwide recession a few years ago, there were these stories that were kind of appearing as people were, you know, being wiped out. Entire economies were being devastated. These incredibly wealthy people, like investment bankers, CEOs, there were stories about people like this who have money far beyond our craziest dreams. They committed suicide, even though most of them were still fabulously wealthy. I remember reading about a particular billionaire in Europe. He lost over half his wealth. I don't know how much he started with, but it was at least a billion, okay? To be a billionaire, you have to have a billion. For those of you who didn't do so well in math. So he lost over half his wealth. That means that he still was worth somewhere around $500 million. Anybody want to trade your bank account for his? I honestly, I'm looking at this crowd. I say we all pool everything we got and trade for that and divide it up. And we would be much better off, amen? But he killed himself. 
worth half a billion at least. And he didn't think life was worth living anymore because money was his righteousness. Money was where he found his significance. Here's the thing that many people today don't understand, and maybe you've never thought about it. No human being, no human being can assure themselves just by themselves of their own value and worth. I don't care how many Disney movies you watch. It just is never going to happen. And you know that, don't you? You need someone. You need something outside of you to give you that assurance, to declare that you are approved, to tell you that you are worthy, to tell you that you are a person of value. And here's what you need to know, friends. If you are not looking to Jesus for your righteousness, you are looking somewhere else. You are looking to something else. You are. Some people look for it in their physical appearance. I want to be beautiful. Some people look for it in achievement or maybe in approval. For some people, some of us here, I'm sure, we look for it in our kids. That's how I know my life counts. That's my righteousness. See, but whatever, the, whatever the, the, that thing is, the fact is everyone, everyone is desperately struggling for righteousness. And here's the weird thing. Have you ever noticed this? Have you ever seen this? Everyone's righteousness, if it's not God's righteousness, everyone's righteousness eventually gets blown away, eventually gets blown up. Recession is one way it happens, but it's going to happen. Old age is another way it happens. Your kids will fail you sometimes. Everyone's righteousness falls apart, gets blown up, blown away somehow, unless, unless you're finding your righteousness in the righteousness of Christ. That righteousness, Paul says, that we're all desperately longing for, you're only going to find it in Christ, and you're only going to receive it by faith. Look again at the text. Paul says it is a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. He's just saying it's faith alone. It's all about faith, faith from first to last. He goes on, he quotes a, a verse from the Old Testament. He says the righteous will live by faith. He's just saying that's the way it is. You can't earn it. You, you have to just receive it, this gift of grace, the righteousness of God's son. You only receive it by faith. Have you broken through? Do you realize that what you're looking for, the only thing that will ever satisfy you, only thing that will ever give you meaning in life is the righteousness that God wants to give you in his son? Here's the third thing I want you to see to break through. Breakthrough happens when I see the gospel as power, not just ideas. Paul says in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. This may be my favorite part of all this because I want you to see, do not miss. It's not saying that the gospel brings the power of God or it results in the power of God or it is a means to the power of God. It says the gospel is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. Therefore, when I believe the gospel, when I understand the gospel, when I take the gospel into my life to the degree that I actually get the gospel to that degree, the power of God is in me, flowing through me. The gospel is the power of God. See, that means that the way you know you're beginning to understand the gospel, beginning to break through, it's not just a concept. It's not just a set of ideas. It's power. You say, well, how, how, do we, 
How do we experience that power? What does that mean? Let me tell you two things, and there could be many, many more, I think, but two things that I want you to see. First of all, you feel the gospel's offensiveness. Notice connected to this idea of God's power, Paul says, I am not ashamed. Well, whenever you say something like that, I'm not ashamed of him, you only would say that because somebody is ashamed, right? That's the only reason you would say that. That's the only reason Paul would say that. He's referring to the fact that people are offended by the gospel, that people think the gospel is crazy. And here's what I want you to know. Everybody who hasn't broken through, everybody who isn't on the verge of breaking through, they think the gospel is crazy. The gospel offends them, everybody. You know, I've been a pastor for over 30 years. I've served three different churches during that time in three very different places. The very first church I served as pastor, still a seminary student, was in a very rural, uh, uh, very blue-collar area of northeast Texas. And these are good people. These are hard-working people, very traditional places, a lot of religion there. Everybody respects religion in a place like this, but not everybody really believes. And here's the interesting thing. Even in a place like this, people are offended by the gospel. You know, I don't know if you've ever been in the South much. It's changing, but the way it used to be especially, you know, it's like everybody's hardworking. Everybody's religious. Somebody said once that in the South, even the atheists are Baptists. <laughs> By that, he, he meant that the God the atheists don't believe in is the Baptist God. So like everybody's into that, and, and it's kind of like this, conservative people, people who are basically moral, who are striving to live upright lives, you know, living by the rules, playing, playing by the rule book, those kind of people who haven't gotten the gospel, they think the gospel is too easy. You, you tell someone like that about the gospel, they'll say, that can't be true. You have to work for it. You need to earn God's favor. It is just not right that there are people out there, they live bad lives, I know them, they do bad things, they're irresponsible, they're lazy people, they make lots of stupid mistakes, they keep making the stupid mistakes. It is not right that someone like that should just be able to go to God and ask him for forgiveness and he just lets them off the hook, that they don't get any punishment. What about all the people like me who've been playing by the rules all the years? Ever known anybody who thinks like that? Lots of people do. But then you come to a place like where we live. And liberal people say like here in the Bay Area. Lots of people who are secular, maybe, maybe lots of education. Maybe they see themselves as sophisticated. Here in a place like where we live, the gospel tends to be offensive, not because it's too easy, but because it's too simplistic. And here's why. In a culture where we live, everything's relative, right? No one's right, no, no one's wrong. Can't really know truth. It's all relative. Everyone's a little bit right. Everyone's a little bit wrong. And no one is really sure what's right and what's wrong. And that just means we can just go home and live any way we like. That makes it a great system, right? You just do whatever you want. As long as you don't offend anybody while you're doing what you're doing. I don't know how that works. And in a culture like where we live, the absolute clarity of the gospel is offensive. See, sophisticated people, secular people, they even like religion as long as you keep it kind of vague and general because in that kind of religion, people are just doing things and serving and trying to be a good person, and everybody's good with that, right? Even if you're a secular person, that's just, that's just their jam, how they do it. They go to church sometimes, but that's not the gospel. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ 
comes to this earth, this first century carpenter shows up and Jesus Christ says, do you remember, I am the way and the truth and the life. And he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And then he dies on the cross and his followers say he dies for the sins of the world. And then God raises from the dead and his followers say he's still alive. And everything changes, doesn't it, if you believe that? Because according to God's word, if you believe that, you're in. If you don't believe that, you're out. And that, in 21st century America, is the greatest sin. To say that you're right and someone else is wrong. Our culture is offended by the clarity, the simplicity of the gospel. See, what I'm trying to get you to understand is it doesn't really matter who you are, where you're coming from, liberal or conservative, blue-collar, white-collar, north, south, east, west. The gospel is absolutely unique. It absolutely stands alone. Everybody hates it. It offends everyone. It makes no sense to anyone. It contradicts every natural system of thought in the world. It contradicts the heart of every culture, every worldview in the world. It just offends everyone because it is the power of God. Do you notice that? That word power in Greek is the word dunamis. You've probably heard this before. We get our word dynamite from that word. What's dynamite for? It's for blowing stuff up. I heard the junior high boys out there. It's for destroying and demolishing things, right? For blowing things up. God's power, the power of the gospel disrupts our lives. And it is the first thing the gospel always does. It is offensive. And if you've not been offended, you probably haven't encountered the gospel. See, we like to think that our world is made up of good people and bad people. God actually really says there's only two kinds of people. There's proud people and humble people. There's people who think they don't need God and people who know God's their only hope. Salvation, the Bible says, is by grace through faith. It's not about us. It's about God's power. It's about what Jesus has done. And that's good news. That's good news. That means that moral successes and moral failures, and we have some of both and everywhere in between here in this room right now, we all start on a level playing field before the face of God. You see, Jesus never said that he came for the righteous, did he? Who did Jesus say he came for? He came for sinners. Jesus said one time that the pimps and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before the religious people. Jesus said one time that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who think they don't need to repent. Do you understand that Jesus could not have been more clear? Jesus was telling his friends that heaven will be full of bad people and hell will be full of good people. It's offensive. It's dynamite. And it always will be offensive until you come under it, until you experience it, until you receive it, and it transforms who you are. I want you to write a couple of things down to think about. I'm just mentioning them really quickly. The gospel does two important things that are kind of under this offensive heading. It humbles the moralist out of his pride, first of all, because the gospel says to the moralist, the person who thinks they are good, it says, yes, you, the moral person, you are so wicked that the perfect, radiant, beautiful son of the living God had to die for someone like you. That's who you are. 
The gospel says that's the only way justice can be served on your account, moral person. But then the gospel also tells us, secondly, that it, it lifts even the worst of moral failures out of self-loathing. You know, one of the things I know every Sunday, sometimes people tell me, most of the time they don't, but I know every Sunday I am talking to people sitting in these chairs, and this is where some of you are. Some of you hate yourselves. Some of you think you are terrible people. Some of you think you have done things and you're so ashamed of what you've done that you don't think anybody would ever look at you again or accept you again or even love you again if they knew what you did. You think you're such a horrible person and you hear messages like this and you think, yeah, that sounds good, but I don't think it applies to me. I am too bad. You need to know that the gospel says you are so loved that it doesn't matter what you've done. You are so loved that Jesus died on the cross for you. Whether you think you're good, whether you think you're horrible, it doesn't matter. The gospel is for us. Last thing I want you to write down. When the gospel comes into our lives, you experience change. Not only the offensiveness of the gospel but also change. And we don't have time to look at this in detail. You guys have not listened nearly quickly enough today. I don't know, you're going to have to work on that. Um, but go back and read the first 17 verses of Romans 1, and you would see this. Just mention a couple of things. I'll say what it is, and then you can look it up. In verse 7, Paul talks about uh, this letter being written to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. You notice the order of that. God loves us. And out of that, he calls us to live a holy life. Our lives change because of the love and the acceptance, because of the grace and the mercy of God. We're loved, and then we're called. And then in verse 5, he talks about the obedience that comes from faith. And again, it's the same concept here. Faith starts, and out of that flows obedience. We trust God. He changes who we are on the inside, and out of that change... We begin to live different lives. So different than when you're doing what Martin Luther was doing before he met Christ. He's trying desperately, struggling, working, never feeling like he had made it. He's trying his best to be a good person, to earn God's favor, and it's never enough. But now we know we're loved. Now we know that we're accepted. Now we know that the Father looks at us and says, I'm well pleased. And out of that, out of that we follow out of that, our lives change. Out of that, we live the meaning of the gospel. Have you broken through? If you've never broken through, if you've never come to that place where before today you've been aware of what God has done for you through his son, Jesus Christ, then I want to invite you today. It can happen right now Right where you sit, what you need to do, the Bible says, is you need to talk to God and you need to tell him, I repent of my sin. It begins with repentance. And repentance is simply turning from the way you've been living your life and turning to God. And you turn from your sins in repentance. You turn to God in faith. You trust him that he will do what he has said he will do. That he will clothe you in his son's righteousness because of what Jesus has done on the cross. 
Have you broken through? You can do it today. You can share what you've done or ask questions or ask for help with whoever's brought you or maybe talk to me or one of our other pastors. We would love uh, to help you uh, keep walking that path that God is opening up for you. Have you broken through? And if you have broken through, then here's the question I want to leave you with. Are you telling other people about how they can break through? Or are you kind of ashamed of the gospel? That's the challenge that God gives to us from his word today. By the power of his Holy Spirit, I I pray that you would hear and that you would listen and you would submit and you would obey. Would you bow your heads now as we pray together? God, our Father, we give you thanks. We are overwhelmed by the beauty of your grace, all that you have done for us in Jesus. And Lord, we may not understand it all. In fact, we'll never really get to the bottom of it. It's so profound, this gospel. But Lord, help us to walk into what we know. Help us to think and ponder and learn even more. And help us to share most of all, Lord, with those who need to know what you've done for them in your son, Jesus. We pray these things, Father, now in the name of Jesus, your son, our Savior and our Lord, and all God's people together said.